to give the band off for a Sunday, that's, that's uh, it's a nice gift, and we do love our band, we love our musicians, we love, we love everybody here, man, that's what we're about here at Hope Community Church, it's a big old love fest, so uh, thank you once again for being here today. As I mentioned earlier, we are in the midst of a, a message series, a sermon series, whatever you want to call it, and we're calling this series Lead, very simple title, Lead, and it's about leadership, it's a series all about leadership. And to give you a brief overview of where we've been so far, week one we talked about you know, some of these myths about leadership. We tried to break down some of these leadership myths, and one of the myths that exist about leadership is that leadership in and of itself is some kind of a, of a personality trait, or it's some kind of talent, or it's some kind of gifting. And, and the reality is I'm not so sure about any of that. I don't know that leadership is a personality trait, or a gift in and of itself, or a talent in and of itself, but instead I think that we should think about it in a different way that we all have unique personality types, unique gifting, unique talents, and we can use our unique selves to lead in various capacities. And so my belief is that everybody, you all, each and every one of us, we all have the capacity to lead at some point, at some time, something, some endeavor, we can be leaders. And let's face it, we need some leaders. Around the world, in this country, in our community, we need leaders because leaders are problem solvers. Leaders are instigators for change, are agents of transformation. They tackle problems. They say, I'm going to fix this. We're going to solve this. We're going to take this situation, and we're going to make it better. And my belief is that we all have the potential to lead change, to make a positive impact. The other leadership myth that we talked about is this whole concept of what does it mean to be a leader? Are you just kind of throwing your weight around? Are you, is it all about your authority and getting your way? Is that what it means? No, 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 no. That's another myth. And that leadership, true leadership, is to be a servant. Jesus taught this. Jesus embodied this. Jesus lived this out. He, he set this example for us. And to lead is to serve. That's what we said in week one, that to lead is to serve. And the, really, the requirement for leadership is you need to be willing to serve other people. And if you have that, that's something that God can work with. If you have a willingness to serve, you can lead. And we went with that a little bit further um, in week two, and we talked about serve like a leader. And of course, you've got this idea of, you know, leading like a servant and serving like a leader and how these things go back and forth. And we said that every opportunity to serve in small ways and big ways, every service opportunity is in and of itself an opportunity to lead. That through our acts of service, we create change. Through our acts of service, we can be leading transformation. Now, sometimes our acts of service, we can make an easy connection between the act of service and the outcome, the act of service and the impact. But other times, we have to really think about it. Think about our acts of service and how we are making a positive impact. And if you missed that message, you can catch up on that online. And so that takes us up to today, taking initiative. Taking initiative as a leader, taking initiative, fighting some cause or working towards some injustice or whatever it is, taking some initiative as a leader in your community. That's what we're talking about today. There is a, uh, a little playground in Norwood by the train station. Do you guys know that little playground there? Some of you are there, okay. When I was little, um, growing up in Holmes, um, I live in Norwood now, I grew up in Holmes. I just spread my wings and I flew all the way to Norwood, you know what I mean? I grew up in Holmes, but my mom would, would walk me. This is when I was, this is before my brother was born, so it was just me. My mom would walk me down to that playground and, uh, you know, you had your standard stuff, you had some swings. It was a big, long metal slide. They don't have that slide anymore, but big, long metal slide. They had one of those merry-go-round things, which are incredibly dangerous and a whole lot of fun. You know those things? You just kind of spin. Whoa, those are fun. Um, they had those things that, you know, you kind of sit on. You can rock back and forth. You know those guys? What, is there a name for those things? I don't know. Do we have a name for them? Anyway, you know those things. What are they called? 
It's not quite a seesaw because it's stationary. You know what? Let's just, let's get to the bottom of this right here and now. That's why we're here today. Anyway, they had those things, and, um, and it was fun. It was cool when we go down there. But as an adult, when I moved to Norwood, I would drive past that park every day, and I realized there's no updates to that place. <laughs> and it's run down, and the fencing all around, it kind of looks nasty. And the equipment, I mean, those things that used to bounce, they don't bounce anymore. They're still there. It's just kind of a stationary thing. And so I would drive past there. This is before Holly and I had kids. We would drive past there, and I would think to myself, ugh, somebody ought to do something about this, right? Somebody ought to do something about this. Somebody ought to pump some money into this place or get some new equipment or fix the fence or get some mulch or something. Just somebody ought to do something about this, right? I mean, not me, but somebody ought to do something about this. Did you ever feel that way? And over the years, somebody has done something, and there have been some new equipment pieces added, and it's weird. They kind of like made a playground within the playground now. I'm like, well, that's one way to handle it. But anyway, you ever feel that way where you, you notice a problem? You see something that's wrong, or you see something that's not quite right, and you think to yourself, well, somebody ought to do something about this. And you're driving down the road, and you hit that pothole, and you think, well, somebody ought to do something about this. It's certainly not going to be me. It's not my job. I don't even know how to fix this. But somebody ought to do something about this. You probably encounter a lot of those little things, maybe at work or maybe at home, or you're in the workplace, and you've got your shared little kitchen area, and it's always a mess in there, and someone's leaving their mess, and you think, well, somebody ought to do something about this. Not me. It's not my job. But somebody ought to do something about this. And so that happens more often than you might realize. Think about that as you're going through your day, as you're going through the week. All the little things you notice that really don't, really don't speak to your passion. Because here's the thing about that playground that I pass. I don't have like a, a real passion for playground equipment. You know what I mean? That's not my thing. I don't have like this big, this big concern for let's, let's create some fun places for our kids to play. And if I had that kind of passion, if I had that kind of drive, maybe I would be me. Maybe I'd say, you know what, I'm the one who should do something about this. But for that cause, at least right now, that could change in the future. But for right now, I don't feel like that's my problem to solve. I don't feel like that's my issue to address. But then there are other times where the somebody to solve the problem is you, where you notice something that needs to be done and say, you know what? This is my problem to address. This is my problem to solve. This, this thing is mine to take on. Do you ever feel that way? Where something just kind of connects and there's like a perfect kind of convergence of like your talent and your gifting and your experience and your resources and you just feel like, I'm it. I'm the one to take this on. Have you felt like that? Let me tell you, if you've never experienced that, you will. You'll find some kind of problem, some kind of cause, some kind of issue where you're the one. Say, wow, this is, this is for me to take on. Now, I've got a, you know, an example of this, and the most obvious one is just you know, my story with Hope Community Church. And you know, I don't want to bore you with the details of my story, because those of you who have been with us for a while, you've heard me talk about this a lot, and you know, I don't want to make this all about me, contrary to popular belief. Um, <clears throat> but like my story with Hope Community Church is, is basically I became aware of a problem that existed in our community, and the solution, as I see it, is church, is the local church. And the local church is something that I'm very passionate about. 
I believe in church planting, or that means starting up a church. I believe that the hope of this world is found in the church. I believe that the gospel is communicated through the local church, and there could be all kinds of wonderful Christian-y things and Christian movies and Christian events and Christian speakers, but I believe the most effective way to make disciples, which is what we're called to do, the most effective way to share the gospel, the most effective way to change your community is through the local church. That's what I believe. It's something that I do care about. It's not like playground equipment. I do care about the local church, right? I've got a passion for it. And when I look around this area, for the longest time, we felt like something needs to happen within the local church and finally came to the conclusion that I guess it's going to be me, you know? Somebody ought to do something about it, and this time, it's going to be me, right? And that might sound really arrogant of me to say, oh, who are you? You're the one who saw... Uh, listen, anybody could do this. So many people could come into this community and plant a church, but it wouldn't be this one. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be the same thing. And I just feel like God gave me a certain passion and a certain vision and a certain clarity. And I was like, fine, yes, for this cause, I'll be the one to step up and do this. And I know, uh, listen, does that sound arrogant? I'm sorry. I'm just not trying to be about that. It's kind of like in, um, it's like in, in Batman from 1989. You all know Batman from 1989. Michael Keaton is Batman. What an actor, Michael Keaton. He went from Mr. Mom to Batman. He's great in both roles. But um, it's like that scene where Vicki Vale finds out that Bruce Wayne is Batman and Vicki Vale's in the Batcave. You know the scene I'm talking about? Y'all know the scene, right? Look it up on YouTube. And so she's trying to sort through all this because she's dating Bruce Wayne and she finds out he's Batman. She's like, why are you doing this? And he says, it's something I have to do. And she asks, why? And he says, because nobody else can. Isn't that a cool line? Because nobody else can. And you know what? He's right. And I know that's a fictional story. It's fictional, right? I know that's a fictional story, and it's about this guy, and he takes on this thing. But he had a unique set of experiences in his life that shaped him. He had a unique vision for what needed to be done in Gotham City. He had these unique resources. He had all this wealth and all these weapons and gadgets at his disposal. He was uniquely positioned to take on this thing. It's like almost a matter of calling, right? And that's a very Christian-y term, right? But you're just like, this is my calling. This is my purpose. This is what I'm supposed to do. Have you had an experience like that? Like, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. This is me. This is mine. The Bible story that we're going to take a closer look at today is the story of David and Goliath. And if you spend enough time, if you spend any time doing like church stuff for Sunday school, you've heard of David and Goliath. Even if this is your first time doing anything related to church, you've probably heard of David and Goliath. But among other things, the story of David is the story of somebody saying, hey, somebody ought to do something about that problem, and the somebody is me. The story of David is the story of someone who says, I've been uniquely positioned, I've been uniquely gifted, I've got the experience, I've got the resources, I've got the vision to take this project on, to take this task on, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the initiative, and I'm going to solve that problem. And the first problem that he solves is the problem of this giant, Goliath. And so we're going to take a look, we're going to take a closer look at this story. In fact, I'm going to read a lot of the Bible today. Are we allowed to do that as a church? I know sometimes we just look at a few verses, but today we're going to do our impression of one of those churches where they look at like several verses. So let's do that. So we're in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible with you, you want to open it up to there if it's on your phone or your tablet or whatever. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. You can just listen. So if you're looking for 1 Samuel, it's about this far back, like almost a quarter of the way. Does that help? I mean, I had my bookmark, so it was easy for me. And so we're looking at the story here, and I'm going to start, um, you know, chapter uh, 17 basically begins with the setup. So let me see if we can get some context to what's going on here. You have the Israelites, and you've got the Philistines, and they are enemies, right? And as far as we're concerned, the Israelites are the good guys. 
They're the people of God. It's the army of God. The Philistines are the bad guys. So that's a simple setup. And so they're going to war, and they're at this weird kind of a stalemate situation where the Israelites take one hill. Okay, so the Israelites are like over here, and then there's a valley, and on the other hill, you've got the Philistines. And so you've got the situation where they're kind of just standing off against each other, and then there's this dude, this, this giant named Goliath who's causing trouble. Now, the Goliath was a big guy, and you can read in verses, you know, basically four through um, seven of, the, of chapter 17, give you this description of what it was like. He's a tall guy. He's all decked out in this armor. He's got a bronze helmet, big guy. You've got to convert cubits to feet, which we don't exactly know how that works. So maybe he was as tall as nine feet. That would be pretty extreme. Uh, but he's a tall, big guy. And this is what he does. I'm going to pick up with verse 6 here. So he comes out and basically taunts the Israelites. Here's what he says. Here's what happens. Verse, uh, we'll pick up at verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. <laughs> yeah. So that's Goliath. That's his whole deal. I'm, I'm just like, all right, I got to tell you this. So, like, when we were testing microphones earlier today, I was doing some impressions earlier. I was doing my impression of Bane from The Dark Knight Rises. And now I'm like, I'm hearing Bane's voice as I'm reading all these words of Goliath. You know what I mean? Doesn't it make sense? That's a little fun tip for you, by the way. As you're reading the Bible, just assign voices to these different characters, right? Doesn't that sound like Bane? This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. You know, something like that. <clears throat> so that's happening. <clears throat> Verse 11, on hearing, I'm not going to do Bane the rest of the time. We'll just, that's it. <clears throat> on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Dismayed and terrified. So here comes this big, he's a champion. He comes out. And it's kind of a brilliant strategy. He makes them this deal. And it's like, I don't know who was behind this strategy, but it's like, it's almost like, well, there doesn't have to be a whole lot of bloodshed. They send out a champion. You send out a champion. Let them face off. And whoever wins, wins. That's all there is to it. And so that's what they do. And so the Israelites, they're dismayed, they're terrified. Like, what, is, what, are, what are we going to do? Now, here's something interesting you should know about Saul. Now, Saul was the first king over the nation of Israel. And so these are Saul's armies. And so basically the way that Israel got a king in the first place is they kept asking God for a king. And for a while, God said, no, you don't need a king. I'm your king. Now, for a while, Israel was a true theocracy. God was their king. He was their president. He was El Capitan. He was their all in all. That was it. But the Israelites looked at the other nations and said, well, they have a king, and they have a king, and they have a king. Can we please have a king? And finally, God says, all right, you can have a king. So the first king is Saul. And if you know anything about Saul, it doesn't work out well with Saul. I mean, Saul had all kinds of paranoia, and he had issues. It didn't work out. But Saul looked like, okay, looked like a king what the people thought a king should look like. Saul himself was a tall man, was a big guy. It says he was head and shoulders above the other Israelites. And so it kind of makes sense. Like Saul, maybe Saul was kind of a giant type person. You know what I mean? 
And so there's Goliath saying, send out somebody to fight me. Well, maybe that somebody should have been Saul, right? Maybe Goliath and Saul should have done battle, but Saul's not taking up that cause. He's the king, and he's not doing it, and maybe, you know, I don't know. I mean, trying to gauge who was taller, who was bigger, it's kind of impossible. But that's the situation there. Now, while all this is going on, there's a man named Jesse who lives in Bethlehem, and he has eight sons, and his three oldest sons, they are part of the Israelite army. So they're there. They line up every day, and they kind of listen to Saul taunt them, or listen to um, Goliath taunt them, and then they go, like, oh, that was a good day. So that's what's going on. So three of the oldest sons are there, the oldest sons of Jesse. Jesse's youngest son is a man, not a man, a young man, right, or a boy named David. And so David is not in the army. David is at home with Jesse, and David takes care of the sheep. He's a little shepherd boy. That's his job, okay? And so Jesse sends David on occasion, sends him to go visit his brothers. He says, take some grain, take some bread, give it to them, come back with a report for me. Let me know what's going on, okay? And so this is kind of David's deal. I'm going to pick up now with verse um, 20. And so Jesse, David's father, has just given David some grain and some bread. says, go take it to the armies. Uh, verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock in care of a shepherd. So he says, okay, you got to cover for me. i got to go do this. And so he lets another shepherd watch his flock. He loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out into its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Well, this is just a bunch of theater. Ah, we're not actually going to fight, but ah, you know what I mean? They're kind of facing off, but there's no battle happening. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies. Here's the grain, here's the bread. He ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. How weird is this scenario? Okay, we're ready for war. And the little brother comes running up. Hey, what's going on? How you guys doing? As they were talking with them, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Oh, this is just pathetic. Ay, ay, ay. Just fleeing from this giant. Now, the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king, and here's, this is cool here, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. And so Saul himself is not stepping up and saying, okay, I'll do battle with this guy. No, no, no. Instead, Saul's put this offer out there. Okay, you kill this guy. Here's what I'm going to give you. He's going to give him great wealth. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and, oh, this is, this is the real prize here. Listen. And will exempt his family from taxes in Israel, all right? You can keep the first two. If that could be tax exempt, I'll do it. Send me. You know what I mean? It's a big prize that Saul's willing to give out. And so they're talking among themselves as David is nearby. And David, verse 26, asked the men standing near, what will be done for the man who kills? Listen to what he says. This Philistine and remove this disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does this guy think he is, right? And if you're wondering why he mentions that he's uncircumcised, you can look that up on your own. Basically, it means he's a Gentile, he's unclean. Thank you for mentioning that in the Bible. Great. All right? And so this is not Bane. This is a young boy. Right? This is a little David boy, a little shepherd boy, right? comes out and is like, who does this guy think he is? 
And see, right here in this statement from David, you have an insight into his unique perspective because it seems like the rest of the Israelites, all the, the soldiers that made up the army, even King Saul himself, they were thinking about this situation from one perspective and David had a different perspective. They saw this giant come out, right, the Israelite armies. They saw this giant and thought, oh man, he's big. We're in this position. It's like if only we get somebody to fight him and kill him. If we just had somebody who was strong enough, if we had a champion of our own, but we don't have any champions that are stepping up, what are we going to do? David sees it completely differently. David says, we're God's people. We're God's chosen nation. What are we going to do? Just stand around as this guy comes out to defy the armies of the living God? And sometimes I think there's like this beautiful, just trustful, almost wonderfully naive. Naive sounds like a negative word, but just like he just trusts God. We're the armies of God. We're the people of God. Who does this guy think he is? And so that's his attitude, that's his perspective, and that's what he says. <clears throat> and so verse 27, they tell David about, here's the prize for someone who defeats him. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. What? Where, what? Where is this coming from? This is like classic sibling rivalry stuff, right? I don't know what it's like to have an older sibling because I'm the oldest one, but it's like, here he is, David just kind of doing his thing, and his oldest brother comes in. What are you doing here? Shouldn't you be watching sheep? Who did you leave the sheep with? Go back and do your thing. I know how conceited you are. What does conceited have to do with anything? Well, this is, this is interesting, okay? This is, this is something to note. His oldest brother refers to him as, as having this kind of like this conceited nature about him. And this is something to be aware of, Okay? When you step out into a leadership role, when you take some initiative, when you step up and say, okay, somebody's going to do something about it and it's going to be me, there are going to be other people who look at you and think, look at this guy. Who does he think he is? Who does she think? I mean, who, who, is, who is she to solve this problem? They've conceded. They're arrogant. I mean, that's kind of the price of leadership is that people will look at you and say, who does this person think? Jealousy or whatnot. And so that's what's happening between these siblings here. Classic sibling rivalry. Look at what David says in response. This is just such a younger brother thing to say, by the way. He's like, no, what have I done? Said David, can I even speak? What, am I not allowed to talk? Right? Classic sibling stuff. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. And so he's asking about what's the prize and what's going on. And what David said, this whole speech, that, you know, this short speech that David got about, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy God? This speech that David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. So word makes it back to Saul. We got this young dude down here, and he's talking a big talk, and he's got this perspective. And maybe King Saul, your majesty, maybe you want to hear from him. And so Saul sends for David. Okay? So they're meeting, and David said to Saul, let no one... So here he is before the king. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And so when David says, your servant, of course, he's talking to a king. He's talking about himself, your servant. I, David, your servant will go and fight him. Isn't that just precious? <laughs> Isn't that just adorable? This young dude coming up. I'll do it. Okay. That's, that's real cute, David. That's just, that's, that's just precious, David. Verse 33, Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. 
I mean, again, there's Saul's way of thinking. There's the rest of the Israelite, how they were thinking. We need someone who's experienced. We need a warrior. We need a champion. That's what they're thinking. And he sees this boy, David, and says, no, you're not, you don't fit the bill, right? You don't have the experience. You don't have the, you don't have the right, you don't have it. You don't have the right stuff. But David said to Saul, now this is David kind of giving his resume, all right, a little bit. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant, again, David speaking about himself, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, he's got to mention it again, Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. It's like, listen, Saul, your majesty, I'm not a champion, I'm not a warrior, but I've killed a lion and I've killed a bear and I'm willing to do what's necessary. And this Goliath is just another beast. <laughs> kill a lion, kill a bear, I'll kill this beast too. Verse 37, ah, here we go. Here we go. It's not just David relying on his own strength and his own experience and his own resume. There's something bigger going on here. Verse 37, this is David speaking. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You know, so often, you know, outside of the church context and just in culture, when we talk about David and Goliath, it's about the little guy fighting the big guy, and the little guy wins. Well, this is different. Yeah, this is a guy who had a unique experience. He killed a lion. He killed a bear. He had that to his credit. But more than that, he had this, this faith. It's the same God that rescued me from those beasts will rescue me from this beast. It's not just about his background. It's not just about his credentials. It's not just about his gifting or his talent. There's something more going on here. It's faith. He's got this faith that these ch- the other soldiers don't have. And Saul, this is crazy. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. This is nuts. This is, cr- this is perhaps the best, thing that Saul, the best decision Saul ever made, by the way. Because here, you remember the deal that Goliath had put out there? He's like, listen. You, you send someone to defeat me, we lose the battle, we're your servants. I kill him, you all surrender to us. So this isn't like Saul would say, okay, well, you go out and you fight him. If you die, no big deal. No, if David loses, a big deal. If David loses, the whole nation becomes you know, subject to the Philistines. That's a big deal. And so Saul see, like, listens to this guy and hears his faith, and for some reason, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's God moving in his heart saying, yeah, go ahead, send him out. He's like, all right, dude, Lord be with you, go. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head, gets them all armored up, and David fasted on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Remember, Saul's a tall dude and all that, and it's just kind of funny. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them, so I took them off. I really wish we had some video taken of this whole scene. Can you imagine getting up on your arms, like kind of walking around in your dad's clothes, and it don't quite feel like, I can't, what am I supposed to do in this? I'm not used to wearing these things. Can't go in these, because I'm not used to them. Took them off, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand. All right, let me get geared up. What am I going to take with me? He takes his shepherd's staff. Takes a staff in his hand and five smooth stones from the stream. <laughs> this is his arsenal. <laughs> it 
some stones and a stick. All right. Put them in a pouch, his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Well, that's not fair. He's allowed to be handsome, right? Us handsome guys get picked on all the time, don't we? (laughs) Handsome. He said to David, verse 43, Am I a dog that you have come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. You ready for a faith statement? Listen to... Listen, you guys got to read your Bibles. There's so much good stuff in here. You're missing out. It's all here. Listen to this faith response. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. When we teach that in Sunday school, we usually leave the decapitation part out, right? <clears throat> Although when I was a children's pastor at our last church, I always left that in. I'm like, oh, this is too good. I can't leave this out. Cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves the battle is the Lord's. It belongs to him. And he will give all of you into our hands. This isn't about the little guy being the big guy. This is a demonstration of God's power and what God is capable of. And see, this, test, it's just this very tangible testimony that David is giving before his own army. The Israelites will see it. The Philistines will hear it. And the stories will be told for generation from generation to generation to generation up to our present day. And here we have this example of, the God, of God's power, what he can do. Because everyone who was there witnessing this said, this is, this is impossible. We got a little guy with a stick and some stones versus a giant who's decked out in armor. He's got his own little helper with the shield in front of him. This, there's no way. There's no way. And David said, yes, there is a way. Because this battle already belongs to the Lord. It's his. So he steps up with his faith. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, I mean, he just got, now Goliath is angry. As he moved to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from his sheath, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. I could have stopped reading like two verses ago, but we needed to get to the decapitation part, right? So we're there. I know you wanted that part. But there's, a, but there's, something, there's something to that. It's like here was a man who was trusting in his might and his strength and in his sword, and David takes his own sword off. No, this is what you trusted in? off his head. Wow! 
So we should go and be like David, right? Something like that, right? <laughs> What's the point? How does this apply to us? What does this have to do with us? Listen, David was the only one. For some reason, God had placed him at that time, and he had this experience, he had this vision, he had this insight, he had a passion, he had a clarity that nobody else had, and there was a problem to be solved, and he stepped up and said, I'm the one to take this on. I will do this. Somebody's got to do it, and that somebody has got to be me. And that is what's required of all of us when we step into a leadership role is to be willing to say yes, even if the odds are stacked against you. If you've got vision, if you've got clarity, if you, ha- if you see the solution to a problem, you're like, I can see it. Here's what we need to do. Then you need to step up. And it's not about whether or not you're qualified or how educated you are, or how experienced you are. It's just about saying, yes, somebody needs to go, and it's going to be me. And I'll get equipped along the way, and I'll get qualified along the way. And if there's something i got to read, I'll read it. If there's something I need to do, I'll do it. I am the one who's going to solve this problem. That's what leadership is, is taking that initiative. You know, we read this story, and it all seems so dramatic. And it, and it probably was in the moment. I mean, it probably didn't feel like a mundane event. It's like, well, I'm going to the store, get milk, kill a giant, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this was dramatic. But so much of our lives don't feel quite as dramatic. Or have you ever experienced something this dramatic or this intense? I I don't know. But even in the mundane of life, there are opportunities to step up, to take initiative, to solve problems, to say somebody's going to do something about it, and it's going to be me. Last week I mentioned that um, at my previous church, um, you know, churches are volunteer-run organizations, and we had a tough time finding Sunday school teachers, and it was an issue, and trying to get people motivated to do this kind of thing and show them how important it is was, a, was always an issue. Well, here's, here's a funny thing that happened while I was at that church. We had um, a few parents of teenagers, a few parents of teenagers. They had their teenagers off in Sunday school on Sunday morning, and so they decided they were going to start their own Sunday school class. And they just talk about, like, what it's like to be the parent of a teenager, right? You know what I mean? And have some topics revolving around that. And so they just kind of did their own like little rogue thing. They did this thing. And so word about this came back to the pastoral team. And on a Tuesday when we sat down for a meeting, we talked about this group of people who had taken this initiative and done this on their own. And the other pastors in the room, don't worry, they're not going to hear this so I can tell the story. The other pastors in the room said, what, who do these people think that they are? I mean, they didn't get approval from anybody. They didn't clear this by any of the pastors. They just found an empty room. They didn't clean it from the facility ma- clear it with the facility manager. They just set up shop. They didn't even have an attendance sheet. Oh, who do these people think they are? And I held my tongue a lot when I was on staff there, but not that time. I said, oh, we've got some people willing to lead Sunday school? We've got some people who have taken this initiative? That's great. How can we support them? How can we help them? What do they need from us? And that's the kind of church that we need to be. That's the kind of church that we are. If you've you've got some kind of passion to do something, to solve a problem, to be a leader, listen, we will support you in that. If you want to take some initiative, go ahead. We'll support you in that. Now, the thing is, with that kind of thinking and that kind of approach to church, things can get messy, right? I mean, what if we had someone here who said, well, I'm going to go teach a Bible study, and they go and teach a Bible study, and people go to that Bible study, and they get their teachings all wrong, and the theology is all messy. Okay, things like that can happen. But you know what? Here's, here's what's up. I'm willing to take that risk because we can clean up the mess afterwards. We can clean up the mess afterwards. I just think about my own life. It's like how, many, how much bad theology have I been exposed to, but somehow it kind of got cleaned up in the end, right? 
So we're willing to take that risk. If you want to do something, if you want to serve, if you've got an idea for a project, just let us know how we can help. Let's make it happen. Let me give you an idea of what the kind of thing I'm talking about. Take another look at your bulletin. Look at these service opportunities. Look at the things that are going on. Somebody in our community noticed that there was a problem. It's a guy not connected to our church. But he realized that there were some families in the Prospect Park Elementary School who were low on funds, who weren't able to feed their kids. And he stood up and said, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to address this. And he enlisted some help. And somebody from our congregation found out about this food drive and said, okay, I'm going to list my church. Somebody in our congregation took the initiative to make it happen here. And we said, great, how can we help? How can we support this? Community support team. Do you know what our community support team is? There's a few individuals trying to love their neighbor. There's a few individuals trying to help other people. And they told other individuals, and they told other people, and it became a team. And we said, great, how can we help? Somebody took the initiative. How many, do you know how, how few ideas that we've had as a church that have come from up here? Like next to none, right? It's you taking initiative. And we say, great, how can we help? All these things, shoes for Africa. I don't even know the details. I don't need to know the details. They need shoes in Africa. Let's make it happen right? All these things. I mean, this overdose awareness walk happening this Saturday, some women from our community said, we need to make, create some awareness over this issue. We need to raise some funds. We need to get people into rehab. We need to solve this problem. And they just decided they were going to do it. And I know for a fact that they faced criticism and people saying, well, who are they to run this? And they don't know. And they're not organized enough. No, just go. And we as a church, we say, well, how can we help? How can we support this? What can we do along the way? You had a team of 15 people this summer going to Texas to rebuild homes that were devastated by Hurricane Harvey. 15 people doing that. You know why that's happening? Because a few people in our midst took the initiative and said, we're going to do this, right? A few people in our midst, oh, let's go ahead and name them. It was Joyce Parcell, mother-in-law to the stars, and Dave and Kelly Bradley got together and said, all right, let's figure this out. And that's why this is happening, because people take initiative. That's how things happen. And so this is my word of encouragement to you. Where do you see something that needs to be addressed? Where do you need to take initiative? Because here's the thing, you're not on your own. Let us know how we can help you as you're fulfilling your mission, as you're engaging in your vision, as you're leading, let us know how we can help you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take the initiative. We've got your back. So what is it in your life? Maybe it's something big. Maybe it's something small. Maybe, maybe forget about scale. Where is a problem that you feel like, nah, you're the one to solve it? And how can we, as your church, help you? Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you for this, uh, for the book of 1 Samuel. I want to thank you for David's story. I want to thank you that these words have been preserved for all this time. And, and Father God, we, we hear about David. We hear about this big dramatic scene. And, and it, it is inspiring and it is encouraging, but, but it's so very foreign to us, God. I mean, our lives, Lord Jesus, sometimes they just feel so mundane, and yet we know that the same God that moved within David lives within us. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, bring to our attention the problems that we can solve. For, for those of us who have been on the fence about taking some kind of initiative, some kind of faith, give us that encouragement 
that we need. And Father God, as your church, allow us to support one another as we lead these initiatives, as we work towards solving the problems in our community. Lord Jesus, here's the one thing that we know. In our community and all around the world, we all need you, Jesus. We all need you, Jesus. So, Father God, whatever it is we do as individuals and as your church, whatever it is that we do, allow us to be messengers of your gospel and bring healing to this community and all around the world. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.